Hi. Hello. I'm Alexis Hyde. I'm Erica Wong. And this is Hide or Practice. And put your hands together. Do you do that when you're on a pod? Just matter. Do it in your car. Do it wherever you are. Put your hands together. We've got uh, the Director of Education and Public Programs, the Vancouver Art Gallery, Melissa Lee. She's also a social practice curator, which I'm very excited to hear more about. And she's also uh, worked for quite a while in Asia. So we've got a lot of experience under the belt. Melissa, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for inviting me, Alexis and Erica. You know, I'm so excited to talk to you. Would you mind uh, just expanding a little bit on who you are and what you do uh, so our listeners know why they are so lucky to have you in their ears this week? Sure. Uh, So originally from Vancouver, but uh, as uh, Alexis, as you said, I worked in Asia for 12 years before coming back to Vancouver for this job at the gallery, uh, Vancouver Art Gallery. Uh, I... Um, I'm a social practice curator, meaning that I curate um, artists that work in social practice. Uh, we do different things uh, related to public practice and relationships and happenings and events. And so that kind of dovetails really nicely into pedagogy and education. Uh, and so what often what we do in education relates to what we also do in social practice. Um, So it's very intertwined. Um, Also have worked and taught in different universities in Asia and Canada as well. Amazing, I love all of that. Uh, So thank you so much for joining us. This is gonna be great. How long have you been with the gallery? Like, is this almost, during the entire COVID time, even though we're still in COVID times, like how long of, um, of a duration were you able to see that transition? Well, my first date was, okay, so I guess going back, the, it's been a tumultuous time in the world. Um, but in particular, um, I left Hong Kong in November 2019 at the height of the Hong Kong protests. I can now say it's the, it was the height looking back now in 2022. Um, and so we left in November 2019. Uh, I started uh, my job in Vancouver in January, January 6, 2020. And by January, there were already reports of uh a pandemic or a disease going across Asia. Um, but uh, in Vancouver, it didn't hit us until March. Uh, and so the Vancouver Art Gallery shut down in end of March, 2020, but we actually only shut down for a couple months before we were open again. Um, and I guess, depending on where you were based in the pandemic, it would be related to how long the shutdown was, what kind of restrictions, what kind of experience you had. Um, So I think that's really been kind of interesting and particularly thinking about it from an institutional level uh, in art. So really you were 
in the post for about like six weeks and then it shut down and how was that transition of like having um has it really impacted in terms of the education department of the gallery from it being in person to shifting it to online or has it always been online or like how how was that uh so we were completely not online before there was no online presence um, in terms of public programming um, and the way that it impacted my department was that we became the forefront of the gallery so usually in um, a museum institution the forefront of programming is the exhibitions but because the gallery shut down for those six weeks the exhibitions were closed and so the only way that we could kind of maintain our programming, our identity, our presence was to shift to online and my department led that. Um, and we, I guess, um, in a way, kind of tried to be extremely responsive to what was happening around us. So we, I think within a, two weeks of shutting down, we started our um, webinar series and we called it Art Connects and we had talks twice a week. So, I mean, I think both of you running a podcast know how difficult it is to organize talks, get speakers lined up, put together themes, get questions ready. So we were doing that at the very beginning of the pandemic twice a week. Um, and we had a huge audience. And I think what was really great for us in Vancouver was that we, during this time period, were able to build more of an international audience. So to give you an example, um, we usually have a talk. It's like a, our major public lecture called the Heller Lecture. And um, we invite different we have a kind of distinguished speaker that comes to Vancouver and we usually get about 80 to 150 people watching um, or coming in person. So last year we did it online um, and we were able to invite um, the performance artist based in New York, Ketchen Xie, and he um, was such a major you know, he is kind of, um, one could say, the godfather of performance art. Um, and we had over 700 people watching from all around the world. And what was so great about that was you, you know, everyone put in the chat um, where they were from, their land acknowledgement. And we had people from France to Taiwan uh, to China, to the United States, to, of course, locally. And so to kind of have that global community come together online is one of the kind of more positive aspects that we've been able to kind of pivot towards during this pandemic. That's amazing. That's, That's a lot of people. That's so many people. Did you guys do anything different in terms of your marketing of like where you were like allocating funds or who you were targeting? Or was this really just organic because people are at home and looking for incredible opportunities to, you know, engage in online? Yeah, I think part of it is um, the fact that everyone is at home, right? The other part of it is, of course, touch and share 
right? The fact that we were able to get him as a speaker and he was willing to do it. Um, and, you know, to be honest, for me, since I just started in Vancouver, like, and I have been away for, well, I've been away for more than 15 years. Um, my connections with the local art community, I need to rebuild. And I haven't really had a chance to do that during the pandemic. Right. Yeah. But I have a lot of international connections amidst the art community in Asia and in Hong Kong. The thing about Hong Kong is that it's such a cosmopolitan city that everyone comes through Hong Kong. And so you meet a lot of people from Europe. You meet a lot of people from Indonesia, from Thailand. Everybody comes through. So I had all these connections and I thought, okay, I'm never going to have the funds to fly anybody over to Vancouver, especially not at the beginning, because I'm still working out how funding works, grants, government, um, st stuff like that. But because of the pandemic, I was able to kind of utilize all these international connections and be like, hey, um, Tachin, would you like to do a talk with us? Yes, I'm in Vancouver now, but it's me still. And so let's let's do this. You just need to go online. Amazing. So sorry, I didn't even, you know, I should have also anticipated the Melissa effect. So this is also just, you're in there, you're using your skills and your history in a way that you probably wouldn't have necessarily uh, anticipated because of the like new online situation, you can also get people in to watching internationally in a way that maybe they wouldn't have been thinking of before because they're doing other things in Hong Kong or Taiwan or wherever they were before. Now we're at home and it's like, oh yeah, Melissa's doing this thing. I'll tell, she got oh, fantastic. Yeah, I'll listen to this, I'll watch this. I mean, you know, I'm a social practice curator, yeah. right? So. Yeah. Like, Do you mind actually just defining that for our listeners, for people who might not know? Because that's it's really it's it's not something not a not a phrase you hear every day, and I love it. Sure, sure. I mean, I mean, in a, essentially, it's a kind of um, engagement through uh, social discourse, human interaction. So you're kind of curating a, a kind of practice or relationships versus. Um, you know, aesthetically cultivated objects. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's related to conceptual art. It's just kind of a less of a focus on the aesthetic object. It's a less of a focus on materiality. Um, so it, it, it is about thinking about the social embedness of, of human activity, right? So one good example, I think easiest is to kind of give an artist example, right? Um, the Thai artist, uh, Rikrit Tiraveni, um, he's most famous for um, cooking Thai food in the MoMA, right? And so it's this idea of creating community, bringing different types of people into the gallery. It's about the context, like a museum that is known for a place where you have... Um, artistic aesthetic objects that you're not meant to touch a particular kind of class coming in instead if you're cooking Thai food in the gallery and people are eating it completely changes the context of the institution of the relationships of the practice so often what Rikrit does um, and I'll say from my understanding of what Rikrit does um, because he may think about it differently because his practice always evolves 
is um, I, I worked a lot with him. Um, we invited him for two years in Hong Kong and he would come and he would work with uh different people that we brought together for a theory school um, called labor and privilege. And so we would be put together in a situation, a social situation, and he would, through the process, kind of um, orchestrate, I think maybe is the correct word, orchestrate what would be happening or where we would go in a way. So awesome. So awesome. Like as such a loss for words. Like I don't I know. know. Because like I think a lot of times when we talk about cooking Thai food at the moment, people are just like, oh my God, I don't know if you you guys get this response. It's like, how's that art? Why yes. is that even happening? Like, and I remember the first time I came, I think it was in a art history class. I'm pretty sure that it was. And we were all like, what? How is this? how is this art? Like, we're so confused as to how that's contemporary art. And then it was, I think what someone said, doesn't that, like, doesn't the smell and like the oil of everything, doesn't that get on the paintings? Like somebody, and I was like, I don't know, I guess it does. Um, but I remember like the idea of really challenging what a museum is and how somebody bringing a completely different experience does change it because it's not a James Turrell it's not you know it's a completely different thing it's so much more is this like the appropriate word human and you get to like connect that and it's definitely not an Olafur lies someone you know so much of your senses are you know you're smelling the food you're watching someone cook and then you get to interact with it, it becomes so social on a different level so it's really interesting just because I think a lot of people challenge that thought like that's not art. Yeah, I mean, and I think that people say the same thing about conceptual art, right? We currently have a show that's featuring Yoko Ono and a lot of the practice and the conceptual art that she did in the 60s, you know, the apple, the, the quintessential image is like the apple on the table. And it was completely like, this is not art. But it's also... Um, uh, you know, it's, it's collaborative. I think you're right, Erica, like what's really important is to kind of think about how it's different from, it's so different from our idea of the artist alone in a garret or studio painting or creating sculpture, right? It's like the myth of the lone, often male white artist creating, right? So you have that kind of very patriarchal image of creation coming like derived from our understanding probably of Christian mythology and God creating. Instead, you have um, this idea of collaboration, right? Like, you know, Rickrit, his work, they'll be when there isn't um, the actual cooking in the exhibition, you'll see the pots and the pans and the cooking utensils and they'll be there, right? But it's not activated or enacted until the collaboration of people come in, right? And they and they they kind of cook, they eat, they talk, they drink, and that's when the artwork is activated. So I think often that's what's 
kind of really interesting aspect about social practice. It requires a different forms, all of these different kind of people collaborating an audience in order to make the art happen. And that's what really interests me about that kind of art. I love that that really speaks to my, my physics brain. There's this like concept of like potential energy versus kinetic energy. And that transfer of like, like what's the thing that changes the this potential amount of energy into something like nothing, like it was always there. It was always this potential. It was just like inert for a moment. And then it, once it starts moving, it becomes one object in motion. But the, uh, but I love that idea of just like the before times, and then you have to have that kind of spark in the people. And it is interesting. Cause it's like, when we're talking about art, so many things, it's like, but what we see, people do transition that into the things that we touch or like we know what it would feel like to touch a, a marble sculpture of how hard or cold or smooth or rough it would be, um, delicate, whatever. And then sometimes we get smell. You're like, if you're in Oliver Eliason, we don't get taste a lot. And, or like interactions of like person to person exchanges. Um, I love, I, that's really exciting. I really love that. Yeah, and I think it's important to, um... It's important to, I think, also emphasize that aesthetic still plays a part into it, right? Like it's still kind of aesthetically curated, this idea of the, the gathering, right? Or um, the relationship building. And um, I think that's what's so kind of precarious and specific about it, the way that a gathering can be brought together, a relationship between a group of people can be in a way, um, I mean, I don't wanna say curated because I always feel like that term is so overused, but assembled in a way. Um, and so there is a kind of very kind of there's a kind of intellectual stimulation, or as you were saying, Alexis, a kind of energy building coming together that is artistic. So I think that is how it's very different from, you know, in a way you could say like community art. It's a kind of social turning, but it's done by an artist. So when it's done by an artist, it's given a particular almost a particular kind of flavor that's interesting. So you can also think another artist like Theaster Gates, a lot of what he does is community building, right? He buys like dilapidated row houses and then he brings in and he revives and energizes the community in a very interesting, great way. But there's something special about all of these projects happening from artists. No, there is because they've all got their own like personal language of like communication. It's not just like, oh, like it's different than what it would be if I was in a room cooking Thai food or like, you know, like it would, that's a very different act. <laughs> it might not be very pretty. guys. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I think it's also the, the deliberation of Thai food, right. In a very European based Eurocentric institution that has lauded European art, like as the best art for generations. And so to bring in something in a way, like very kind of interesting, it's like quintessentially the most famous Thai dish 
there is is kind of part of that interesting um, juxtaposition that Rick Ritt did um, way back. So is this when we break for lunch now? <laughs> well, we definitely have a couple of great Thai restaurants. <laughs> I'm coming to Vancouver, guys. That's what's happening. <laughs> I think you should. I really think you should. So in do you think social practice has been able to adapt with COVID? Yeah, that's the next big question, right? Because um, how can you cook Thai food and have that even if Zoom and whatever other platform allows for you to go and see each other? I think there, you know, I think this is what a lot of people feel that's missing in the art world is being able to be in the same room to, to see the things, to experience the things. And for a social practice, how might that adapt with restrictions and limitations, people being in, able to go and be in spaces together? Yeah, I mean, we're kind of seeing that, okay, so what's very common in the art world is traveling, right? Like everyone tries to go to the art fairs in their region or even internationally outside of their region. There are kind of seasons uh, where you go to Art Basel, you go to Freeze, um, you go to Venice, Biennale, and then you go to Documenta every five years. So you're traveling like Europe, Asia, LA, London. Um, and so everyone, and then there's the Biennales, right? like all these Biennales and there are great ones like that, you know, of course, Venice, but there's Istanbul, which is super great. And, um, you know, you have, and often, and I guess in a way, similar to when I worked in university, the only time that you see your friends is through these kind of meetings where you're seeing their artwork, you're seeing them talk in panels. Um, and, it's a global community. The art world is a global community and often you only get to see your friends through these kind of meetings where everyone's traveling the world and coming together. So during the pandemic, nobody was traveling the world and nobody was coming together. And so that was, that. so that has been a kind of huge difference. But what I've also talked about with friends that are in the art world is also, it was too much right? There was too much traveling. There was too much uh, running around, going somewhere every couple of days. The carbon footprint was incredible. Nobody needs to travel so much. And that did not need to happen so much in the art world. I think everyone misses it, but it was too much before the pandemic. So I think there's a realization that there's a lot of things that we can do online and still be together, but there are some events like Documenta that hopefully um, are worth going to in person and to see. And I think talking about social practice, I think Documenta will be the first kind of big um, interesting uh, iteration to see if social practice can kind of evolve with the art world. I think the curators of social of Documenta this year 
uh, the Indonesian the Indonesian collective Rangrupa, a, a lot of their work is derived from social practice and their group of artists collectives. Um, they're all about collaboration. And so the programs that I've heard that they have put together sound incredible. And I think it'll be a good thing to see um, how things evolve and iterate. And that's really a large part of what social practice is. It's about evolution and iteration, the change that happens from kind of reacting um, and evolving with current events in the world. So I think hopefully we'll be able to see a lot of evolution this year. One can hope, one can hope. I was thinking, I was like, oh, I really want to go to Venice. And for whatever reason, I thought, oh, it's happening next year. And this like, year. Well, that's a, and then I was like, oh, no, it's not next year. I like looked at the calendar. I was like, no, 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 it is this year. And then I was like, I guess that's not happening. Um, and I mean, like the postponements of so many fairs, you know, people were like, we're going to do this. We're, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And then you get the emails like it's not happening. We will wait for another six months to see whether it will happen or not. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting because I don't think the pandemic has really impacted art sales. So I, you know, for a gallery to to go to an art fair, to have a booth, to bring artwork, it's a huge investment, right? Like several hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, and so I think it's interesting to show these couple years that the art sales have not been impacted without the ability to go to art fairs. Um, a lot of talks were online. I participated in an Art Basel talk in Hong Kong online here in Vancouver. And the speaker that I talked to was in Venice at the time. So Venice, Vancouver, our audience was Art Basel Hong Kong. Um, and it was fine. We had a great turnout so so yeah i i think i think it's maybe really uh it, it's not the right thought process to hope that things go back to normal because there were different ways in which we can improve with knowing and understanding what we've learned during the pandemic in any in what should happen is that we should think about things that we did better during these two years and how we can bring these lessons and these uh, kind of understandings of how we do things better forward when someday we're able to be to travel again and um, be back in the office. How has that or is that going to be implemented at the VAG. And if people don't know, that's what people call the Vancouver Art Gallery. It is called the VAG. I did not know. It's and I was like, what acronym. Are it's, it's what's going weird. on? Yeah. Where are we it's, transitioning this to? It's so weird, but that's what it's called. What it's it's called. called the VAG. The VAG. Okay, great. Um, yeah, I mean, I think for us, uh we we've been really operating on a hybrid model um a lot of my department we have 
a lot of digital programs and we're not going to stop doing them even if the pandemic is over because we'll lose our international audience um, if we do so. So that's a really important part of what I think is important, particularly as I kind of relearn what's important in Canada. Um, what is important in Canada? Tell me. I feel like I want to know this. What that's is, a real small question. What is important Canada. in Canada? <laughs> well, I feel like Canada is really into regionalism and nationalism, right? There's a lot of focus on local audience, on local, on national. There's not, I think it's also, you know, living for me, I lived in, um, lived in Hong Kong. I lived in Montreal, which was more kind of focused on the international. Vancouver, I would say, is more focused domestically. Um, and so it, it is partly the government, I think, because the government rewards local content and national contact, domestic content. There's even metrics, right, in Canada to show you need X amount of local content to be applicable for particular kinds of funding. And so I, I was actually thinking about this last night, how this, and this happens in all sorts of different countries. Um, there's a really great article by the theorist um, Carol Yinghua Lu, who talks about similar kind of government policies that happened in China that pushed particular forms of contemporary art in China to survive and to thrive. Government policy in the country has a big impact on kind of the way on an artist's trajectory and the art world in the trajectory. So if you're funding only domestic national content or you give more funding towards particular streams, then it will shape the creative content, right? So, so yeah, I, I think that that's what's been happening in Canada for years and years. So, so I think through, through that understanding, I've been trying to take more of an interest in policy building in arts in Canada. Nice. That's awesome. Personally or through the gallery? Both? Um, I guess you could say it's intellectually in a way. Like, I think when I go to a new country or city and I feel like even though I'm from here, I'm relearning what it feels like to be in, to be Canadian. Uh, I, I'm kind of seeing it as an outsider. And so I'm, in a way critiquing this city or country that and the kind of iterations and policies that put into place and that's what I've kind of I've been noticing um and also I'm just been trying to form opinions right and so I usually am very adverse to forming opinions until I've done research just because you know working in academia for so long it's you just do that as part of your training and so that is also, I think, part of me trying to form opinions about national culture where I live now. I agree. I agree so much. But it's true because I've had so many people say like, oh, you know, even 
in the provinces because of government funding, they give you different, um, the government supports you. So in the East, like in Quebec, it's almost, isn't it 50-50? Like, and in BC, it's like, they're like, it's not even remotely close. So, you know, like if you want to be funded, um, move to the East Coast and you're like, mm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really a kind of different mindset. So, for example, in Hong Kong, nobody depends on government funding in the arts. Everybody I mean, can you even like I think I mean, there's some but you know, I mean, like, can you even depend on the government to give you some money to go and do things? Well, there's something called the Arts Development Council, but mm. the funding is very, very low. Um, and so and they cater are- to a very specific grouping of For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And here I've noticed like people won't do projects if they don't get grants. So they'll be like, I want to do this artistic project. I want to do this exhibition. I want to go here, but I will only go if I get a grant or if I can apply for some grant and then I'll do it versus in Hong Kong. It's more like I'm going to do this and it doesn't matter if I don't have the money because there is no funding stream. And then hopefully maybe somebody will see it. And then it's more of a kind of looking at capitalist collector streams of funding. So like you kind of would approach a collector or you would approach uh, a commercial gallery to see if they would be interested in funding it. And if nobody is, you still do it. So it's a kind of different understanding of what um, is possible to make a living in art. Awesome. That's really interesting. And Bucks, there is, depending on where you are, yeah, there's like places where there's more government funding. America is not one of those places, but depending on where you are locally, there's, you know, more activity in, from, you know, like in New York, there's a lot more grant uh, residencies than there are in California. Um, and you can take advantage. And then I think that, then again, this is going back to what that theorist uh, who you named, it's, it, it ends up forming what the art is a little bit because that's what the resources are. Grass is green where you water it. Um, and I think that's so interesting to think that people at the end of the day are adapting as well, where it's like, okay, if I don't have the, the grant from the government, I'm gonna, I'm gonna reach out to patrons directly and collectors. And that's something collectors are interested in. Uh, because it becomes an opportunity. And I think it's interesting to think that like, you know, that probably also reflects onto the collector and gallery world as well, where they're like, oh, this is something I can expect from artists or I can approach an artist and say, yes, do you have any ideas? I'm interested in funding something. Um, I like that. And I I think, you know, what's, what's interesting and when, you know, the best thing that I ever learned from an artist I worked with was if it doesn't exist, the thing that you want to do, you should do it yourself. If the person who's funding or the thing that, or the iteration or like the parameters behind the project you don't like, you just do it yourself. It's better to always do it yourself. You, and so I, I always find that when I get stuck or discouraged, I think about that artist and what he said and he was right in every single way possible. It gives you agency when you think like that, that you have the power to do it. Even if no one will fund it, nobody likes it. It's going against the grain of what's popular or what's fundable. It doesn't matter because you have the creative agency to do it. 
Completely. Completely. And I think there's something really special when you're not waiting for the grant, because it's almost like you're giving up some part of you just waiting to be acknowledged or seen or validated because it's like if the government gives me this lump of money then it means that they like me it means that I got their approval and to some extent like it is useful like on your cv I guess um but like I think it also is not the healthiest of relationship with your practice and yourself it's just you're sort of always just waiting for someone to give you that approval and we all know that in the in the art world it's not it is not a an easy path to get validated and be seen and given money and I think one of the things that I really learned in Hong Kong is that access of you can just like you're saying Melissa you're somehow magically you're able to find patrons you'd like you don't know how but like that access of meeting somebody who's a really big collector it just like is the person standing next to you at an opening and it's and I don't think that I've actually found that in a lot of other places where it's just like oh so what do you do and it's like oh I collect art and they're like oh it's this and then people will be like do you know who that is and it's like no it's just like some person that was standing up I've had that happen to me so many times I was like do you know who that is and I was like no just a person <laughs> just like some human who's yeah, wanted to- yeah, oh my god I knew you were gonna say that I was like it's just some human. some human who just like stood next to me that like and I was just but it happens all the time in Hong Kong like honestly it's some really big shot someone and you're just like okay great yeah I, I'd have to say funding is not an at working as when I worked as an independent curator in Hong Kong, funding was not an issue. There were other issues, but funding was not the issue ever. What have you been reading, watching, or listening to this week? Yeah, so I, um, uh, so we're opening um, an art, a, a show in March on artificial intelligence. It's called the Imitation Game, and I'm organizing a symposium um, with UBC on April seventh, um, and it's around the themes of uh, artificial intelligence. But specifically, it's about the ethical implications of technology. Um, and so it's, it's about how, so I'm, I'm reading or I'm bringing together these speakers and they basically apply pressure into, um, data analytics. They apply pressure into how our understanding of data analytics are essentially racist. Uh, and so I've been kind of, I'm really been learning about that. Um, so that's, that's kind of what I've been reading. So I, that's, I've been kind of reading all around that. And so the specific book that I've been reading um, in relation to that is um, the author, Sophia Noble. Um, and she wrote something called Algorithms of Oppression, How Search Engines Reinforce Racism. She just won the MacArthur Prize, I think, this year um, related to it. And then, um, so I'm, 
I'm also reading a lot of this theorist, um, Fred Moten. Um, I, I read a lot of his works and his books. Um, and a lot of my thinking is kind of just kind of understanding. I think he's one of the foremost thinkers working today. And we currently have a Shakespeare folio exhibition. And so he wrote something um, not that long ago about Othello, um, kind of in relation to Chris Ophelia's new works on Othello. And it's this idea of how Shakespeare created not the invention of human, but in a way the invention of whiteness. And so I've been kind of thinking a lot about those two things. Um, but, you know, I read a lot. I have, this pandemic has led me to read a lot. Um, so I usually have about 10 books on the go. Casual. Incredible. Uh, Melissa, thank you so much for joining us. This has been, I mean, just the deepest of pleasures, um, which is appropriate for somebody who works at the back. <laughs> I'm not going to take that back. Well, I try gonna take that back um if our visitors are so inclined where can they find you on the interwebs um i guess okay so i have a personal website um and you can always contact me there um and then and that's just like melissacarmenlee.com but anything related to work of course you can always contact me on the vancouver art gallery website and you can also find me there um and yeah, I think those two are the best places to contact me. Fantastic. I'll put all of that in the pod notes. Um, and if you're listening, guys, on Apple, uh, like and subscribe. It helps the, uh, it helps talk about juicing an algorithm. Let's, let's juice it in the right way. Uh, let's water that grass, make that green. Um, if you guys need me, you find me hide or die anywhere. And I'm Alexis. <laughs> I'm Erica. You can find me at to practice practice. And until next time. Bye. Bye.